What's better than one John? Here's Johnny. Hmm, nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kenzano and Wilner, AKA John and John. When I was a kid, I had a book. It was a hardcover book. It was called The Answer Book of Sports. It was written by a guy named Bill Mazur, who had a long history uh, being uh, you know, a sports journalist and a radio show host and just fantastic Q&A sports book that hooked me as a kid. Told me all about the Super Bowl with Joe Namath and told me all about golf's majors and, and Ted Williams and Major League Baseball. It was just all these great answers to hundreds of questions about the world of sports. That book was alongside me throughout childhood, and I, I, I can still remember the cover. In fact, I still have the book. I'm John Canzano. I'm along here with John Wilner, Barry, a news group superstar. You can read his work at Pac12Hotline.com. You can find me at JohnCanzano.com. Wilner, d- does that jar any memories for you? I had the answer book of sports. I, I was a sports nut as a kid. Oh, I was too. The thing I remember having was the Bill James baseball abstracts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would get them every year. And I got into rotisserie baseball. Actually, I think I was in college. But even long before that, uh, you know, I grew up a big Baltimore Orioles fan. And um, so I, but I would get Bill James every year. And uh, plow through that thing. I loved getting into the stats. Of course, back then you didn't have nearly as many of these stats as you. What is OPS and WAR and all that stuff was was not around. But just the old basics uh, w- was great. Uh, so I definitely remember that. That plus uh, electric football, yes. right? Which I yes. think we discussed. Those are my two of my big memories from uh, childhood sports fandom. I had an aunt and uncle who got me a Sports Illustrated subscription every year at Christmas, and they gave it to me as a gift. And along with it, people who remember subscribing to Sports Illustrated, you would get, like, a gift. And they they got, like, the sports encyclopedia from every year. And so I would get that encyclopedia, and I'd pour through that thing as well. And in addition to taking those magazine covers and putting them on my bedroom wall, and did you have a favorite Sports Illustrated cover? Because mine, mine were always 49er related. A kid growing up in the Bay Area, it was like Dwight Clark, 1982 NFC Championship game, catching the catch. I remember the, that you know. one, yeah. Did you have a oh, favorite? I mean, everyone was waxing nostalgic with the downfall of Sports Illustrated, really sad stuff. But did you have a favorite cover? Uh, you know, there was one, Rolando Blackman, Kansas State, in the NCAA tournament against Oregon State. Yes, the shot. Um, and then, you know, the Miracle on Ice one is iconic, right? Uh, but I, my dad subscribed to Sports Illustrated, and I read that thing cover to cover. I mean, that you talk about fantastic long-form writing. You know, I used to just – the Frank DeFord articles, the Gary Smith articles, there was just – you know, I'd wait – just wait for those to come in the mail to read them. Thursday. It, it showed up at my house on Thursdays. And yep, I'd yep. run down to the mailbox, I'd grab it, I'd look at the cover, and then the second move, the inside back cover to read Rick Riley or Steve Russian later or whoever was yeah. writing that. Lee that, Montville? Yes. Who, whoever had that, the final word in you know the back of the magazine, mm-hmm. I always I always went there first. And, and it probably shaped a lot of what I ended up doing and what you ended up doing. And it's kind of sad to see that happen. And I, you know, I wallpapered my bedroom with those covers, you know, it kind of was like a time capsule of sports, you know, everything from Mike Tyson's rise and fall to, yep. you know, the Olympics and basketball and sports illustrated reminded you every week of what was important. The covers were so good. They were the, it was so crisp and clear, the, the photo, but you know, just so simple. Right? Beauty in its simplicity of those cover photos. Just awesome. We will aim to be beautiful and simple on today's <laughs> podcast episode, but we solicited some reader questions. We've got a whole bunch of them here. Great questions. Big range. Um, Wilner, where do you want to start with the Q&A? You know, in, in honor of my old friend, Bill Mazur, who wrote the answer book of sports, and in honor of Bill James and the baseball abstract, we're going to do a Q&A episode here. Where do we start? 
Let's start. Actually, let's start at the start. Okay. Okay. We got totally random question. What is the name of the song that plays at the start of our podcast? Well, I'm going to insert a few bars of it, but uh, I asked the production guy, uh, Brian Griggs, our great production guy. I asked him, what is that song? And it turns out there's a clever, clever little uh, backstory to it. It's, it's a song titled Not Now John by Pink Floyd. Get it? John Wilner, John Canzano, Not Now John by Pink Floyd is the name of that song. Um, and uh, I think I, I smiled when I figured that out because I did not know that. And I went and looked it up. But uh, good stuff. Good sense of humor on the production side. I like that. Amen. Amen. Now, now that we've gotten the most important question out of the way, where do you, where do you want to hit here? Football, NCAA stuff, a couple of questions about Washington State, Oregon State. Can we start with football? Because I don't want to start with the NCAA stuff. I, I just get, I get so kind of, I get down. It's, you know, I understand it's all important and we need to talk about it, but let's start with some of the fun stuff first. So, you know, what do you, what do you, uh, right. what do you see as, uh, you know, the, the first football question, uh, let's start with Kalen DeBoer. Um, okay. Question coming in. I'm still shocked that Kalen DeBoer did not make a statement, tweet, post on Instagram, take out a time, an ad in the Seattle times, thanking fans, thanking the city, thanking the university. He said something at his Alabama presser, but what do you think the standard should be for a coach leaving another school? Wilner. Well, Kalen DeBoer was employed by Washington for... 25 and a half months, something like that. It's not like he put down deep roots in the city, uh, you know, but that's also part, that's part of the deal now in college coaching. You get guys come in, come and go quickly. Uh, there's no way there could be a standard. I totally understand the sentiment of the behind the question, you know, and if you're a Husky fan, you're feeling like, you know, he kind of kicked you in the gut and and uh, bolted town. If you're an Arizona fan, you're feeling the same way about Jed Fish. But that is what this whole business is about. And that's also part of the reason that the fact that the coaches come and go uh, and, you know, leave in an instant. They leave after they've said they're staying sometimes. But that's also part of the reason why there are so many uh, – the transfer situation is the way it is because it's hard to say the coach – or the players can't move if the coaches are moving. And so, you know, I think that question gets to the little bit, the larger issue of of player movement and mobility. And, you know, it's not going to stop what we're seeing with the transfer portal, just like nobody is stopping Kalen DeBoer from, from leaving Seattle to go to Tuscaloosa. Uh, you know, it's interesting, that, you know, because it seems like the question is rooted in the feelings of Washington fans who – felt a little bit jilted or maybe unappreciated as DeBoer's leaving to go to Alabama and he looks back and says something. But I think you can tell more from a coach's departure than you can, far more than you can from their arrival. And when they're coming through the door and they're talking about, you know, how much this is their dream job, how much they love it, how much, you know, how much they've wanted, what a great opportunity it is. You can tell more about a person by the way they exit. And I do think, you know, I don't want to set a standard for the coaches because I, I just kind of want to observe them. I think it was a bad look when Jonathan Smith left Oregon State and dropped his gear off at Goodwill on the way out of town. It's a slap in the face to Oregon State, his alma mater. And, you know, Kalen DeBoer not thanking Washington, not taking an ad out in the Seattle Times, probably something he should have thought about, but it tells you something about him. And it tells you something about the mentality of coaches. I think a lot of those coaches are so wired in Next month, next season, next week, you know, they talk about living in the now, win the day, all that stuff, but they are never, almost never looking back. And, and for Kalen DeBoer, Washington's in the rearview mirror. And for Jonathan Smith, Oregon State's in the rearview mirror. Jed Fish, Arizona, rearview mirror. They're, they're all focused now on the next recruit, the next NIL dollar they can get to. And, uh, you know, the, you know, people say coaches are paid liars. I won't go that far. But I just think, you know, they're ambitious, they like to win, and they're often forward thinking and, and not thinking about the uh, destruction that they leave in the path. Yep, well said, well said. Uh, here's a good one. 
football, continuing in football. Will the new matchups on the West Coast drive interest for one season and then sort of wear off after the newness goes away? You know, in other words, you know, do we think Big Ten schools, Big 12 schools playing out in the Pac-12 footprint, you know, is that going to fade after a season or two? I'll be curious. I think it depends on the school. It certainly is going to depend on the opponent, right? I mean, I don't think anybody's going to get tired of Ohio State and Michigan coming to town. But I have serious doubts whether, you know, uh, Rutgers at UCLA, Illinois at Oregon, uh, you know, Cincinnati at Arizona, uh, you know, those are going to, I don't see those getting much traction. I think there's a novelty to, like Maryland plays at Oregon on November 9th, this next season. There's a novelty to it. Like you haven't seen that before. And I think Oregon, you know, they sent out a big survey to their fan base kind of asking how many tickets do you plan to buy? You know, they're doing they're thinking about a renovation on Autzen Stadium and concession and parking renovations. But a lot of it to me felt rooted in, hey, who can we market? Who's excited about us going to the Big Ten? And I think there's a novelty there, like, you know, seeing Maryland or Wisconsin or, you know, certainly, um, you know, Michigan, Ohio State. But but I think after a season or two, I think the question's right. Like, is there going to be an appetite for Purdue? Illinois, Rutgers, Maryland, I don't think there'll be a, more of an appetite. I think that people will kind of file it away, you know, in the way that they probably looked at Washington State or Arizona, Arizona State after a while. And on top of that, you don't have the regional appeal. So I don't think it's going to be easy, like for Maryland fans on the East Coast to get over to Eugene to see a game. But I have heard from some people who are excited about seeing some new stadiums, seeing some new opponents. I think that will happen, and that will be a thing for a year or two. How about you? Yeah, a year or two. I'm. It's kind of like uh, I think it's like judging a new head coach. You kind of got to give him three years before you can come to a conclusion. And I think it's going to be like that with this realignment. You know, let's see where everything stands after three or four years. Now there could be a whole lot of changes at the NCAA level, but let's see. You know, in twenty twenty seven, twenty twenty eight. Right, halfway through the Big Ten's new media contract, let's kind of see how this whole thing is playing out. Because uh, I'm I'm skeptical now. UCLA would tell you that there are so many Big Ten alums in Southern California that they're going to draw better for Indiana at UCLA than they would for Oregon State at UCLA. But what does better mean? Does that mean that there's you know forty five thousand empty seats in the Rose Bowl instead of <laughs> 50,000 empty seats in the Rose Bowl. I, you know, I don't know. We got to see how it plays out. All right. Question coming in from a listener. There will be three time zones of travel next year. Is there a competitive advantage for the West to East traveling teams or maybe the East to West traveling teams? What do you think on that front, Wilner? You go. Well, my big thing on that is it depends on the kickoff time, right? The nine, if you're kicking off at noon in the Eastern time zone, that is, I think that's a big advantage for the, the home teams. And, it, you know, just like we've seen over the years, NFL, college football, West Coast teams have to play early. That can that can be a big disadvantage. I've seen it manifest itself. I, You know, Oregon State had to go play Louisville, played like a 10 a.m. kickoff Pacific time going east. And Oregon uh, has had a game or two where they've gone in that same direction. I think uh, we're, we might see some more creative things from some of the teams that are going west to east with those kickoff times. Um, I also think that, you know, I, I think some of the departing Pac-12 schools, the four schools that are going to the Big Ten, who believe that they're not going to play a 7 o'clock game, I think they're being a little naive. And so I do think there could be an advantage with those West Coast teams having late games and the East Coast teams having to come west. But I don't think we're going to see Ohio State with a 7.30 kickoff. But you may see Maryland playing at Oregon yeah. at seven o'clock. You know, if if yeah. there, there's a window that still needs to be filled, right? Yeah, there is zero chance Ohio State and Michigan are playing late games on the West Coast. Uh, that's just not going to happen. It, at least, you know, as conference games, uh, it, it'll be interesting too how it plays out with the Olymp basketballs, the Olympic sports. Right? I think that's where the travel is going to be really felt. You know, football teams, 
are going to be going to the Eastern and Central time zones three times, four times a year. They're chartering. They're going to be there for two nights, basically. Uh, it's it's w- how it's going to hit the Olympic sports, right? I mean, are, are uh, is Stanford's basketball team going to play one weekend in, you know, Boston College at Syracuse and then stay over and the next weekend they're playing Wake Forest and Duke? Uh, UCLA, are they doing the same thing in Minneapolis and and Bloomington? I think that's the Olympic sports is where it's the travel is going to take a big, big toll, which is part of the reason I think it is only a matter of time before there's a reshuffling and the Olympic sports kind of get turned into regional leagues. I think you're right on that, and I think uh, – it's why I think, you know, Oregon State and Washington State, the Pac-2 or Pac-12, whatever you want to call them, I think they are kind of sitting back right now going very slowly, and we'll get to this in a little bit with some of the Washington State, Oregon State questions that are that were submitted. But I think they're going slowly right now because I think there may be some remorse in those Olympic sports, and there may be a push for some of those schools to come back and play a more regional – play in a more regional conference at some point, especially if football splint, splinters away. Yep. Um, Here we question. go. This one's yeah. right up. This yeah, is right up your alley. Yep. Will the Ducks win a natty in the next five years? <laughs> Have they closed the recruiting gap with the SEC enough to win? We need to get Cliff Harris on the show, who coined the term natty uh, when he was at Oregon, and we need to get him on, and we need him to to put a moratorium on the use of the phrase the natty. Uh, <laughs> I don't like it. Uh, call it the championship. Call it the national title. <laughs> But will they win the next five years? I mean, I think they're in the conversation. The way that Dan Lanning is recruiting, they're in that conversation. He had the best recruiting class that Oregon's ever had. He know, He's acting like a guy who knows something that the, the rest of football doesn't know. Uh, but I think we all are kind of going, well, it's the NIL. It's Division Street. They, he's got a top three NIL um, backing. He, I think Oregon is really well positioned, and I, and you know, look, I don't think for a second that he was a serious candidate at Alabama. I think they know that his buyout was prohibitive. He's got a twenty million dollar buyout, but I think he was really smart in the way that he positioned that. And I think they're sniffing around a national championship. I'm not going to say they break through because I think they still need to get by Michigan and Ohio State in the Big Ten, and there's still Georgia and whoever else in the SEC. But Oregon's in the conversation. I think Oregon will be a perennial playoff team in this era, in this next era. And I think they're going to be in the playoff often, and I think they're going to sniff around it. And that recruiting gap appears to have closed. And some of it may be that back in the day, and I had an ACC coach say it, back in the day, you know, uh, the SEC was the only conference that was doing NIL. Now everybody's doing it. So um, right. <laughs> so you have a level playing field. But what do you think? What do you, they still need big bodies, though. They will they be able to get the D tackles? That's the question. Michigan still need that. big bodies. That's right. And in some ways, it's a tougher road because you got to win at least three playoff games, if not four. Right? Top the top four seeds will get buys, but if you're not a top four seed, you got to win three one and dones. I mean, the the college football playoff is a lot like the NCAA tournament. So there's you know, more risk of upsets. There's more chance to get in, obviously, because if you finish third, second or third in the Big Ten, you're getting in. Uh, but but certainly once you get in, there's there's a lot of risk. So I, I think that Oregon put it this way. If you ask me who's gonna which of the West Coast schools is gonna be the first to win a national title, I would say Oregon over USC and Washington. Uh, but boy, do I see it for the Ducks in the next few years? I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know. That's a tough one. They, they've got a lot of work to do on the line of scrimmage. Yeah, it's really interesting because Oregon is was scheduled to play Hawaii in Hawaii on August 24th of this coming season. I'm told by Hawaii's athletic director that that game is off. Oregon is uh, backed out of it, Can't wants it canceled, either wants to move it to a future year way down the road, or get rid of it altogether. They're, they'll buy their way out of it. They don't want to go to Hawaii. They don't want to play the 13th game. And do you think some of that is rooted in the fact that, you know, you could see programs playing 16 or 17 games this next season? Oh, absolutely. And and also, it's such a long year because there's two buys. Just the way the calendar breaks down, 
everybody's got two buys. So uh, I was surprised to, uh, initially to see that Oregon had agreed to play 13 games. Uh, and then certainly, I mean, nobody's doing that anymore. I can't remember the last time someone took advantage of the, of the Hawaii exemption and played 13, especially a Pac-12 school. But uh, I don't blame them at all. It's just that is, you know, an additional, what, 6,000-mile trip. Uh, and and it's uh, another chance to get guys hurt. I, I, I'm, they're smart for getting out of that game. Yeah, and Oregon still has it on the schedule. I just reached out to somebody at Oregon as we we're speaking here and said, hey, why is that still on the schedule, even though Hawaii's telling me on the record it's off. Other sources at Oregon are saying it's off, but it still remains on the schedule. I think it's probably just an oversight, and they're about to move it once it for- contractually gets moved. But... Uh, Hawaii's athletic director told me they are not going to play that game on August 24th. So Oregon will open August 31st at home against Idaho. Um, moving on, next question. Let's pivot into Washington State, Oregon State. In the new Pac-2, reader or listener asks, how much postseason money from making the CFP or March Madness or other tournaments are available? Are there pl- How do they split those winnings? You, you've been all over this topic. First of all, the March Madness NCAA tournament units are paid out in rolling increments, six-year rolling increments. So Oregon State and Washington State are stand to collect about 50 or $60 million in NCAA tournament units that were earned by UCLA, Arizona, Oregon, and others. So they're going to continue to collect those units. And that's why this tournament is also potentially valuable for those two schools. Now, The men's basketball teams haven't been great this season. You know, it's looked a little shaky at times. But the more teams that the Pac-12 can get in the tournament, the more money Oregon State and Washington State will have. So they'll get that postseason money. They'll get the, the, you know, the future potential college football playoff money. The playoff is expanding next season. And it will be expanded in the 2025 season as well. After the 25 season though there is essentially no playoff because the current contract with ESPN only runs through the 2025 season so starting in 2026 we have no idea what the playoff is going to look like I mean it's probably going to be 12 teams but access revenue sharing TV partner media dollars all those things are unknown it's a blank slate starting with the 2026 season But for the next two years, my understanding is that even though the Pac-12 will not be given automatic qualifier status, which is understandable, the Beavers and Cougars will get their share, which is roughly five and a half, six million dollars per school. So they're each going to collect 10, 12 million from the playoff for the next two years. But after the 25 season, we have no idea what the playoffs going to look like, and it could, it could just be an SEC Big Ten playoff for all we know. I mean, there's a lot of directions this thing could take, uh, but because the ESPN contract expires after the playoff that will be in January of 2026, there's there's no media deal. And you, we're watching these two schools. You know, they're sitting on 255 million of combined. Mm-hmm assets in you know that they're going to collect maybe more but they're there's I, I think a big part of why they're slow playing and kind of doing everything in one to two year increments like you know it's a one-year scheduling deal in football with an option to pick up a second year it's a one-year deal in basketball with an option to pick up a second year like i i think the reason they're doing that is because you know they don't know what's going to happen with the playoff and that what's going to happen with right. college football and i think it's wise like you know on one hand, they've got the ticking clock of, hey, we need to get to eight teams if this is status quo. On the other hand, they're watching lawsuits at Florida State, Tennessee, you know, posturing. They're they're watching, um, you know, the 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 scuttlebutt with Charlie Baker and, you know, will will major college will the NCAA exist? All that stuff I, I think is looming and swirling in the background, and in some ways, chaos is their friend, and in other ways, you know, it just creates a little bit of anxiety. Yep. And we should add that part of that $250, $260 million that you mentioned, a big part of that is the Rose Bowl contract. Now, that is a separate 
revenue stream from the five to six million per school that I mentioned earlier that the Beavers and Cougars are going to collect. The Pac-12's yeah. contract with the Rose Bowl is good for the next two years, just like ESPN's contract with the playoff is good for the next two years. So that Rose Bowl deal is what is it? Eighty million? I think it's fifty uh, million a year. Fifty million. Fifty a year. million a year. Yeah. So hundred million total. That is a big chunk of the two hundred and fifty or so million dollar total assets uh, that the two schools have. You, you, you know, hundred million there, and then you got the March Madness money over time is is sixty seventy million. That's the bulk of their assets. Plus six and a half million per departing school. So each of the 10 schools paying six right. and a half million and they're able to pay that defer half of it. So they're paying over two years. <clears throat> so a school like Arizona or Cal, that's a little cash strapped can do that over a two year period and um, leads to the next yep. question. Uh, Washington state and Oregon state fans want to know possible outcomes or landing spots after all of the realignment with the ACC settles possible landing spots. I'll go first on that one because I, th- I think it just dovetails nicely with kind of the uncertainty of in the swirling landscape. I've heard sources at both schools say that essentially chaos is their friend, that they think some some destabilization of the landscape uh, could be favorable to them. Now, you know, they don't want to what happened to them to happen to other people, but I think Oregon State and Washington State definitely feel like they belong in major college athletics. And if Charlie Baker and the NCAA come out and say, hey, we're going to create a top tier and you have to buy your way in and you have to, your athletes have to be employees, I think Oregon State and Washington State would try to sign up for that because they know what life outside from the outside in looks like. And if Florida State leaves the ACC, I think schools start running for the hills again. And you could see Big 12 schools, you could see ACC schools all trying to clamor for footing and potentially the Pac-12 becomes a thing again. Or maybe some of the schools that left Come running back. I don't know. But I, I think that, you know, along that lines, if you're a Washington State or Oregon State fan and you're kind of n- nervous about what's happening, just keep an eye on the landscape. And football splitting away uh, could potentially result in Oregon State or Washington State having a shot to get back into major college football and, and be like a Power 5 equivalent, you know. Or, or re- some kind of realignment with the ACC could cause some schools to be available and you know, if you're Oregon State, Washington State, you don't want to just add six Mountain West schools and then suddenly you're the Mountain West. You have a chance to maybe take Stanford or Cal back or or maybe you get somebody else. So I think, you know, that destabilization could be beneficial to those schools. Yeah, their whole strategy is based on being flexible because nobody knows what college football is going to look like in two or three years. And the next six months, uh, we, you know, we saw today uh, – Attorneys General for Tennessee and Virginia are now filing a lawsuit against the NCAA for trying to enforce NIL. You know, the next six to nine months are basically going to tell us what the rest of the decade and and the 2030s look like, I think. Uh, So they're smart to stay flexible. And I'm sure they noticed, uh, you know, Florida State has been very public, right, about its unhappiness with the ACC. Uh, but I'm sure the two schools noticed the other day when uh, a member of the Nor- University of North Carolina Board of Trustees, which oversees the whole UNC system, uh, spoke about being unhappy with the ACC revenue situation. So that is a second power school within the ACC uh, governance structure that is kind of on the record expressing some unhappiness. Uh, the one thing we know is that if Florida State is successful in its lawsuit in challenging the ACC's grant rights, that the Seminoles will not be alone. Carolina's out the door with them. Clemson's out the door with them. Virginia's out the door with them. There could be others. So uh, we will see what happens, but I think we're going to probably know certainly by the end of 2024, if not a lot sooner. I, I expect that thing to not be successful because I think if you start blowing up grant of rights essentially you're telling everybody that a grant of rights doesn't exist if florida state wins but let's that's see right and here comes a super league yeah let's see what happens we'll see but but the thing is how do you get the toothpaste back in this tube when they have been so vocal in their criticism of the conference the lawsuit uh i just i just think that that thing is beyond repair and they're going to end up settling 
in some way that allows uh, FSU to get out of the ACC deal. Maybe not this year, but uh, we'll get out sooner than later. Uh, I I don't I don't see how it how it ends with them getting back together and everything's happy. Question. All right. Go ahead. All right. Here's another one. Going forward, this is a good question. Yeah. Who owns past Pac-12 video footage? Individual schools or Washington State and Oregon State? For example, will Oregon have to rent footage of the pick from Oregon State? So that that <laughs> references to Kenny Wheaton's yeah. famous, most famous play in Oregon history, right? The interception of Washington, send him to the Rose Bowl in 1994. Uh and that is uh, certainly an iconic moment in Pac-12 history. You want to take a stab at this? Yeah, I reached out to a couple of sources on this, uh, you know, because I got this question before, and I was told that nothing has been officially decided, but the content that was created by the Pac-12 network theoretically would belong to the conference and the network, not the individual schools. So, you know, the Kenny Wheaton stuff, um, you know, might be it might predate that. You'd have to look at Oregon's individual broadcast deal and what where did that appear, who shot it, whatever. But I I think that there's a really good chance. I still have questions about this, but I think there's a really good chance that, that the Pac twelve network content belongs to the Pac two. It belongs to Oregon State and Washington State. And and the others, if they want to use it, will have to pay rights fees on it. But that is one of those to be determined things as I understand it. What do you hear? Yeah, well, the important piece is there is still a Pac-12 conference, and Oregon State and Washington State control it. And all of the intellectual property that is owned and has been owned by the Pac-12 for, you know, what, 108 years, as far as I know, that is going to continue to be the case as long as the conference exists as a legal entity, right? And there's a lot of value. My, It's like a house, Right. And you got 12 people living in that house, 10 have left, but you still have two living in the house and you have all the furniture and all the possessions. And those possessions are worth something. You go up in that attic and you got Kenny Wheaton's pick and you've got UCLA's basketball history and you've got Marcus Allen, right? And and Reggie Bush and Tiger Woods and Barry Bonds and all, all the... Everything that the Pac-12 has has done, Jackie Robinson, as far as I know, that is still owned by the Pac-12 conference, which is controlled by the, the Cougars and Beavers. And that is one of the reasons I, I believe that they want to keep the conference name alive because of that intellectual property value and the brand value. The Mountain West has been around for 25 years. The Pac-12 is depleted as it is has a lot more brand value and intellectual property value than the Mountain West does, which is why I believe that any Mountain West school that gets an option to join the Pac-2 in a couple of years is going to do it because the Pac-12 brand still will trump the Mountain West brand going forward into the next decade. Yeah, I was looking a little bit at the, uh, you know, obviously there's an exit fee that those Mountain West schools would have to pay. It's about 17 million bucks. And then the Oregon State Washington State agreement with the Mountain West, you know, if it is done before August of 2025, if that that exit happens, there's a 10 million dollar fee that they pay to the Mountain West for the first school, and then it's 10.5 million on the second school, and then 11 million. Uh, it can get pretty expensive pretty quick. But I just don't. I don't think they're going to take six Mountain West schools. I don't think ideally they they would pick off six Mountain West schools. I think they'd probably love to have two or three and grab, uh, you know, some other schools that may be unhappy in other places. So, you know, or depending on the the destabilization, if something else happens, backfill with other schools. But again, I think they're going to pump the brakes. I think they're going to go slow here. Um, moving on to a random question, totally random question. Somebody asking what the scope of this podcast will be starting this summer. Are we going to talk about all the teams previously in the Pac-12? West Coast High Division One programs, regardless of conference. What is the scope of this podcast as you see it, Wilner? Let's kick it around. 
a, a deep dive into your experiences with icy roads. <laughs> that's that's about we got about four good minutes of content on that. <laughs> and after that, it's it is a slippery slope. But um, I I I tell people, and I say this not just with the, this podcast, but what the writing I'm doing, and probably the, I'll let you speak for yourself, but. The writing and the coverage that I have, I'm going to go where the interesting stories are, where the stories that need to be told. Like my curiosity will drive some of that. But I, you know, I'm located in the Pacific Northwest. Of course, I'll pay attention to those teams. I'll probably pay more attention to the WCC and Mountain West. I'm definitely going to follow the four teams going to the Big Ten. I'm curious about the Pac 12 teams going into the Big 12. And I'll just go where that takes me. And I think this podcast probably follows suit there so if you care about college athletics and you're a curious person this is the podcast for you yeah and the thing is and this is going to shape uh the hotline is going to continue to cover all these schools and their new conferences the important piece is that everything is interconnected right what happens in the acc is going to affect a lot of schools out here what happens with the latest NCAA lawsuit is going to affect everybody, right? It's becoming increasingly interconnected. You compete under the banner of a specific conference, but with the changes to the NCAA, with the expansion of the playoff, uh, it is all, everything affects everybody in terms of what college football is going to look like in a decade. That I am completely fascinated. If I could, if I could, uh, earn a living simply writing about what college football is going to look like in 2035, I would do it in a heartbeat because I find it intellectually fascinating. Not sure that there's quite the audience for all that, right? People still care a ton about their teams and what's happening on the field and on the court. But uh, I think that this podcast and, and what we're doing with writing is going to become even more important because the issues are so complicated and so impactful on what happens to any specific team over the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. You know, I worked at six different newspapers and I felt, you know, that at times I was extremely uh, constrained by what I could go cover. And since going out on my own, I, I felt like I can just go now if I think the story, there's a story to be told in Salt Lake City, I go. If there's a story to be told in Pullman, Washington, I go. If the story's right here, you know, where I am, you know, in the state of Oregon, I go tell that story. And I won't forget the bread and butter, but I'm going to go where the stories are. And, if, you know, if it's Stanford and Cal and the ACC, I'm going. If it's the Pac-2 and rebuilding the conference, I'm going. And, and and I think you've got that freedom with the hotline as well. And so, yeah, oh, yeah, I think I mean, it's the best of both worlds. Yep. I mean, I just look, it's as, uh, it's as simple as, you know, BYU and Utah in the same conference. That's a goldmine for me right there. I could just write about that every week in the fall. And uh, uh, so, yeah, tons of stories, all of them interconnected. Certainly, uh, you know, the Washington State, Oregon State rebuild of the conference, I also find fascinating and am going to write about uh, as often as uh, possible, but it's... Uh, it's going to be uh, – we are watching uh, – it's like evolution play out in real time here with college football. It is like being on the African savanna, you know, three or four million years ago and all of a sudden seeing, you know, apes start walking on, on two legs, right? We are seeing that this whole thing change before our eyes and it's only going to take a year or two and we'll know what the future is going to be. Skipping ahead in our random section. Um, when is Petros Papadakis going to be on oh, the Pat show? Petros. When do we get him on the podcast? Petros. Uh, we gotta well, get him. we should get him on. We should get him on before USC's first first game in the Big Ten, right? Yes. I think he'd be a great guest in the summer. Like, you know, spring or summer, for sure. Actually, USC, before they play a, a Big Ten game, they got to play LSU in Vegas. Their schedule is, man, both L.A. schools, both of them play LSU for one thing, but, but boy, they have tough schedules. It's going to be really interesting to see how they do next season on the field, both of them. Love to have Petros on. He, he, you know, definitely get him. Put him on the list. What do we got next? Um, 
All right, here we go. Should uh, Arizona's meltdown and the dismissal of athletic director Dave Hickey make Utah fans concerned that Utes athletic director Mark Harlan might leave for Arizona? I, I, you know, it's interesting. I did a survey of more than a dozen ADs, and in the Hickey firing was probably one of the sparks for that. And I just wanted to talk to ADs about how their job had changed. What are they thinking about? What's different? You know, has the has the skill set for the position changed? And I got a lot of feedback from ADs who were saying this job is nothing like the job that existed five or ten years ago as an athletic director. They're getting less contact with student athletes. They're responsible for more things. There's more pressure. ADs now um, are getting called out on Twitter and social media. It used to be 20 years ago, nobody knew who the AD was, knew the name of that person. Um, and so it's just a lot of scrutiny and a lot of eyeballs. So I don't necessarily think it's the Dave Hickey move or any individual AD, but I think athletic directors in general are kind of looking at each other going, hey, we don't have time to go to practice anymore. We now are responsible for helping our NIL collective raise money in addition to trying to build facilities. Um, there's no time to hire a coach when your coach leaves. You have 72 hours or you lose your players in the portal. And this isn't as much fun as it used to be. And I, and I don't feel sorry for them, but I do kind of empathize with the fact that this is a very different job. And Dave Hickey at Arizona had a president who leans into sports. And you better believe that, that Bobby Robbins' fingerprints are all over all the decisions in the athletic department. And, you know, as one AD told me, said, quote, Hickey's left holding the bucket at the end. And I think, you know, I think it made ADs kind of take notice. Yep. Well, and nobody knows how long Bobby Robbins is going to have a job. Uh, I, that situation is is seems pretty tenuous to me. I would say on the Harlan front, though, can understand the question. He is an Arizona grad. He knows Brent Brennan, the new football coach. They worked together at San Jose State. Uh, Harlan, very close to former Arizona coach Dick Tomey. Uh, so certainly it, from a personal standpoint, it's understandable why Utah fans would see him uh, in moving to Tucson. I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure that Arizona can afford him. I, my guess is, you know, Arizona's got so many budget issues, they're not going to be able to break the bank for anybody on this AD search. Harlan's got a good deal at Utah. He's done a very, very good job. Uh, he's on the playoff committee. He's been uh, on football oversight committee. Well-respected. Could be a great hire for Arizona. But I'm I'm skeptical that they could that they can get him. He'd be a good he'd be a good guest for this podcast too. Yes, when the dust settles, I think that'd be a good one. Um, Jimmy Lake came up in our questions. He's taking the job as the Atlanta Falcons D coordinator. Um, without the need to recruit or being overwhelmed by a head coaching position, do you agree that Jimmy Lake will do well in that position with the Atlanta Falcons? Ooh. I think probably, I mean, if you judge him based on how he did as a coordinator, position coach, coordinator in Seattle, he was fantastic. You know, before they hired him, he was the hottest assistant coach coordinator in the country. Uh, he just was not equipped and it took two years and a pandemic and a whole lot of stuff for to for us to see the full picture but you know he was not ready to be a head coach but i think that he could be a terrific coordinator i'm a little surprised he's i don't know who's exactly calling the plays for the falcons on defense but you know i would have been kind of expected that he would start off as a position coach but you know good for him he deserves a second chance um and and hopefully he'll be successful he's been laying low and, and i think it's good Real for him low. and i i do think look i think there's some classic examples of really good football coaches who made good coordinators or good position coaches who just weren't cut out to be the CEO of the program and be the head coach. And Mark Helfrich at Oregon comes to mind. I think he was a really skilled coordinator, good play caller, not the CEO of a program. He's just not the guy you put out front, especially not in this era of NIL and transfer portal. He just wouldn't do well there. But I think, I think I'll be really curious to see more. You know, I'm not going to say, will he do well, will he not do well? I'm just curious to see does he resurrect himself and does he stay in professional football? Because it was evident kind of watching him that season that maybe college football wasn't where he belonged, but I think the guy's a really good coach. Yeah. And he's going to coach 
and coach against a lot of his former DBs because there's there are a lot of Husky DBs in the NFL. I mean, Trent McDuffie's playing fantastic. So uh, good for Lake. Here is uh, I'll let you handle this. Okay. Does Phil Knight also support his other school, Stanford? Yes. He does. He cares about Stanford. He supports them, but not like his baby, not like Oregon. I mean, Oregon is a different thing. We're talking about a billion dollars in support that Phil and Penny Knight have given to the University of Oregon. And there's a plan uh, in perpetuity to help support the program. I mean, he's not showing up in the Stanford locker room, getting a game ball. He does that at Oregon. And so I think it's clear that uh, Oregon's his favorite child. He credits his time in Eugene and, uh, you know, the obvious uh, the runway that that led up to him launching and co-founding Nike and selling sneakers out of the back of his trunk. So I think he's got a soft spot for Oregon like none other. And, you know, over the years, he's supported Oregon State quietly, helped them retain Pat Casey, the baseball coach. He kept a suite at Research Stadium for a long time. He, uh, you know, Nike supported other schools, but not like they supported Oregon. Oregon was almost like, you know, it was the uh, it was the Nike playground, and and they were able to test products, and and they've done yep. some things at Oregon that they're not doing at Stanford and other places. But yep. he's given he gave a hundred million to Stanford's business school. Yeah, I don't know, fifteen twenty years ago. <laughs> I have always wondered. We should do a podcast on this. Okay, how I, I love alternative history. What? How would things have played out if Phil Knight had gone to Oregon State instead of Oregon? Would the Beavers base? Would they be going in the Big Ten right now? Yes. I I think that stuff is just yes. fascinating. I think yes. I there's no difference between the television market in Eugene and Corvallis. It's negligible. It's you know, and they can both claim Portland to some extent. In fact, there's more Oregon State graduates in the Portland metropolitan area. You can make an argument Oregon State has a bigger uh, bigger flag that's planted in the biggest city in the state. It, but the, the the difference is the brand. Oregon's brand has benefited immensely from Nike's you know, influence. And it's a it's become a product testing ground. And it's become the place that gets, you know, uh, the boost from Phil Knight and Nike. And, and, and if Oregon State had that, Oregon State be the one going to the Big Ten and Oregon be stuck in that soup that Oregon State's in. Fascinating. The way that whole thing played out. All right, I got one for you. Got one for you. All right. Um, let's talk about David Shaw. Did David Shaw get any real looks in this coaching cycle? Sounded like he wanted to stay in football. What did you make of David Shaw? And maybe this will be the last question for today, but what did you make of David Shaw's sort of um, interview with the Chargers? Well, and he interviewed with Denver last year. Uh, I think Condoleezza Rice is on Denver, the Denver Bronco board. Um, uh, well, I, I think he wants to get He wants to coach in the NFL. I think he's always wanted to coach in the NFL. He just wasn't in a hurry to do it because he, you know, he understood what he, you know, a good situation in Stanford. He's been out of coaching now for, uh, you know, since November of 2022. Uh, I think he wants to get to the NFL. Um and uh, he's, you know, he's got a very good, you know, his reputation is very good. I think he's been smart to uh, kind of do the the draft stuff with NFL Network, and he so he's he's been in it at the NFL level in in a, you know on a peripheral in a peripheral way for many years through the through the NFL Network. And I think he's gonna he'll get a job at, at some point. Uh, I don't know exactly how serious things were. With with the Chargers, but uh, I I could imagine him going. Now he could end up being an offensive coordinator first. I I don't know uh, if if he's interested in that, but he wants to coach in the NFL, and I think he will at some point. I kind of wondered if he would if he and Chip Kelly could end up being a package deal somewhere. They're, you know we know they're close friends and they they see the world the same way. Be interesting, but um, you know I I'm not surprised that he wants to be back around football. I think it kind of signals to us all. Mm -hmm that he recognized the challenges at Stanford were not tenable and it, it was a job that he couldn't, he wasn't going to be successful in. And I think, you know, it, it just sort of signals that to us in, in a big time way. And I wasn't surprised to see him pop up, but I, I just don't know if, if, uh, you know, the chargers weren't going to hire him over Jim Harbaugh, but 
I certainly think there were some jobs out there that, you know, sometimes a retread coach gets hired. And I kind of wonder would David, David Shaw, who, you know, has some experience coaching in the NFL, if he would, I think he'd be successful at just about anything he did. But it just kind of signals to us that he did not want any part of NIL and the transfer portal while being Stanford's coach. Well, it's so hard at Stanford. I mean, that, that stuff is so difficult. So you can understand that. And if anybody is wondering if Jim Harbaugh might hire him, because Shaw worked for Harbaugh, uh, you know, this the first couple of years at Stanford before Harbaugh left, the answer to that is uh, unequivocal, no chance. Uh, they will not be working together uh, at any point, in my opinion. Uh, what happened? What? Wait, wait, wait. Let, what happened there? Oh, uh, the, you know, just the story. Uh, after Harbaugh left, I mean, Harbaugh, you know, he wears people out. Yeah. Uh, even the people he w- works with for many years, he wears everybody out. He burns hot. And, uh, you know, he left. I, there was some, uh, I, I don't think they were exactly chummy after Harbaugh left for some things that happened, you know, in Shaw's first, second year that I think he didn't necessarily appreciate. And that they are not, I would not say that they are close put it that way yeah i think a lot of head coaches kind of great on people that way some of them you know that relentless thing i know mario Cristobal. yeah mario cristobal wore his assistants out at oregon and i'm sure he does he does that at miami i mean just demanding relentless and harbaugh's got that in his game as well yeah he does last question last one at least on my end okay and this is partly a joke because i know who who sent it in over twitter okay uh but in case people are are curious the question is what's rollo up to meaning former washington state coach nick rolovich who fired in october of 2021 for not complying with the state uh covid vaccine mandate and i can tell you that rolovich is going he's back in the game and he is going to be uh offensive coordinator i believe for the san diego i think it's the san diego sea dragons of the xfl so he is back in it at the xfl level uh so we can all we can all rest easy roll us back in the game well there you go wilner uh i appreciate you taking these questions and love doing this podcast with you we'll keep it going for those of you who want to read me you can read me at johnconzano.com and you can find john wilner at Pac12Hotline.com. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast, and uh, we're looking forward to big guests coming down the pipeline and uh, more episodes. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for your questions, and thanks for all the support.